I'm going to try something a little different this morning, as you can tell. We're not singing yet, or we sang, but we're not, we're not going to have a sermon and singing before and after. We're actually going to intersperse it. We want to talk about the power of song. And uh, I don't know uh, how many of you, I'm going to actually ask for a show of hands, how many of you have seen the movie, I Can Only Imagine? Oh, wow, okay. So you know where I'm coming from. Uh, that song was written in 1999, I think, something like that. And the movie tells the story of, of how that song came to be, what the guy's experience was, and, and how he wrote it. Uh, I know that you all know that I'm very stoic and I never cry, but I, th I think I teared up both times that I watched that movie. Both times. Uh, it's impacting. And, and so what we want to do is we want to we look at song and, and how we sing and, and what it's all about and how it actually helps us. And this morning we're going to do a little bit of a walk from the Reformation to the present and we're going to, we're going to sing. And for some of you who are my age or older, uh, the first bunch of songs are going to be familiar to you. You probably know them by heart. Uh, our scripture reading this morning was actually a song. And there are some 185 recorded songs in the Bible. 80% of them come in the Psalms, of course. Uh, songs put words and feelings to the expressions of our heart. They're a very important part of our worship, our testimony, uh, both individually or personally and also corporately as we sing together. And I think I don't have to tell you that God commands us to sing. Singing connects us emotionally Singing unites us as a church. Uh, the first recorded song that we know of is in Exodus chapter 15. It's the song by Moses and Miriam as they come out of slavery in Egypt. And for almost 2,000 years, Christians have used singing as a way to worship. The Apostle Paul wrote, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So let's go back in time a little bit, and let's go to the Reformation. The first Protestant hymnal was produced in the early 1500s during the Reformation. Hymns became an expression of faith, of trust in God, and of hope during difficult times. And I'm not going to unpack all of the background to the Reformation, like the Gutenberg Press, etc., uh, or Erasmus's New Testament in Greek, but there were plagues, there was persecution, there was economic and social upheaval. In fact, I'm, I'm actually going to venture to say that it was probably far worse than two years of a pandemic. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it was quite a bit worse. People thought the end was coming, the way things were going. So in 1527, one of the most popular hymn writers was the great reformer Martin Luther. Uh, amongst some of his other writings, he also wrote some 36 hymns. A mighty fortress is our God is easily the most well-known hymn that he wrote. It's based on Psalm 46, and uh, that's a psalm that many of you probably memorized, which is a hymn celebrating God's sovereign power over all of earthly and spiritual forces. And it's a sure hope that we have in him because of Christ. Now notice, it was also written the same year that Luther turned his home into a hospital because of the plague. Okay? So it, he wasn't on easy street here. After publication, it gained immense popularity throughout Reformed Europe, 
and it's woven into the web of the history of the Reformation times. It actually became the national anthem of Protestant Germany and the Reformation. It was sung at Augsburg during the Diet, or it's called a Diet, a conference, and in all of the eastern, eastern central churches of Germany, often at the protests of the priests. It was sung in the streets, comforting the hearts of Melanchthon, Jonas, and Kruziger, three theologian friends of Luther, who were expelled from Wittenberg. You remember that Luther nailed his thesis on the Wittenberg door, and, and it produced that whole rebellion. It was sung by poor Protestant immigrants on their way to exile and by martyrs at their death. And the hymn also became closely associated with Luther himself as it embodied in its words and melody so much of the character of the author. Bold, confident, defiant in the face of opposition. So I'm going to call the praise band up and we're going to sing this hymn. Uh, mighty fortress is our God, and I want you to think about whether think about whether you are back in 1527 in the Reformation and you're facing persecution, and this is your this is your battle song of faith in God in the midst of struggle and persecution and hard times. I invite you to stand as we sing together. Ernie said that some of you might have these songs memorized, and I would say if you have this song memorized, I'm impressed. Let's sing, uh, we're going to sing verse 1, 3, and 4, I believe is what it goes, so, but follow along. Oh, God. 
may be seated. I can only imagine that that would uh, take on special significance if you were uh, being led to your death because of your faith. Second hymn that we want to sing this morning, uh, written uh, a number of years later in 1868 by Fanny Crosby, is called Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. Fanny Crosby, as many of you know, was uh, blind since infancy. She wrote some 8,000 hymns, 8,000 plus hymns. And apparently one evening while she was visiting a prison, she was walking down a long aisle between the cells and I guess out loud reciting the Bible verses that she knew by heart. When suddenly she heard a man call out, Remember me, O Lord, please don't pass me by. This hymn is the humble cry of Fanny Crosby and any other person that does not want the gentle Savior to pass him or her by while he is calling on other people. Kneeling at the Savior's throne of mercy and deep contrition, Crosby sought to find relief for her own unbelief. And by the way, she lived in pretty much abject poverty. She trusted in the Savior's merit and grace for healing of her wounded and broken spirit. She confessed the Savior as the spring of all her comfort and more than life to her because he is the only one that she had on earth and in heaven. So what is your situation presently? Will you also cry out to this Savior of the world not to pass you by? Call to him like the blind Bartimaeus that we read about in Mark chapter 10 who called out to Jesus. Called out to Jesus. He will surely listen to you if you call to him in faith. Let's sing this song. Sing together. Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble
Attorney Horatio Spafford and his wife Anna had a wonderful family of three, four, sorry, four daughters. Tragically, the Great Fire of Chicago destroyed most of his business in 1871. Uh, two years later, his wife and daughters were aboard an ocean liner when it was struck by another vessel and sank. They were on their way to England. All four daughters drowned. His wife survived and nine days later was able to contact her husband by telegraph with this question. Saved alone, what should I do? Spafford took the next available ship to join his wife and during the passage, the captain of the ship notified Spafford that they were crossing the place where the, sh the vessel had sunk. After moments of reflection and over the course of the rest of the journey, Spafford penned the words of this beloved hymn. It is well with my soul. May God teach us that whatever our lot, whatever you're facing, we can still say it is well with my soul. Life will confront us as well as Spafford, whether to that degree or not. So the question is, in whom or what are we anchored? The songs we sing in the darkest of midnight will be the very songs that show the world that the unwavering faithfulness of our Father is still there because he loves us. The darker it gets, the more we should sing. Let's sing it as well with my soul. <clears throat> I think this is one of those that we need to stand for. So can we stand together as we sing?
Oh, 
can be seated. Well, I recognize that uh, we don't live in the Deep South, and I recognize that probably many of us seated here uh, were not directly uh, affected by this. But between the 15th and the 19th centuries, the transatlantic slave trade transported some 10 to 12 million enslaved Africans to the Americas. Negro spirituals were created by the Africans who were captured and brought to the U.S. to be sold into slavery. This stolen race was deprived of their languages, their families, their cultures, and yet their masters could not take away their music. Over the years, these slaves and their descendants adopted Christianity, and they reshaped it into a deeply personal way of dealing with the oppression of their enslavement. Their songs, which were to become known as spirituals, reflected the slaves' need to express their new faith. These approximately 6,000 spirituals were created and passed along orally from person to person. They actually weren't allowed to learn to read and write. And I wonder, uh, the songs maybe mirror the songs of the Exodus or the songs of exile in the Old Testament. Uh, We know that in uh, 1861 to 1865, the Civil War happened, and right kind of in the middle, the proclamation of emancipation in 1863 when Abraham Lincoln put an end to it. But we want to sing a chorus that comes out of that period, uh, Do Lord Remember Me. So let's sing. I know we just stood, but this one you may have to tap your toes to, so let's try it.
your, your Apple Watch is going to say that you got your exercise today. So there, it's a good thing. A uh, little closer to the present, and I guess we we're going to go back and forth a bit, but I, I found something that has fascinated me uh, that comes out of China. They're called the Hymns of Canaan, and kind of from 1990 this way to the present, uh, I, I think these are kind of an equivalent to the Negro spirituals. Uh, these hymns of Canaan are a collection of approximately 1,800 Chinese hymns composed by, and I'm going to butcher the name here, but Lu Xiaoming, a Christian convert peasant woman with no musical experience or education. Zero. In fact, they brought her to New York to the Philharmonic Orchestra, and they were I'm, I hope I can use the word gobsmacked. They couldn't believe that she could write these hymns, and she has nothing other than the Holy Spirit. Her hymns reflect themes of Christology about Jesus, pneumatology, the Holy Spirit, and eschatology, the end times. And they're an expression of hope in the midst of struggle. The hymns are one of the most successful underground Christian publications in China. And they're used by many Protestant churches, both the underground house church and the officially recognized Protestant church. In fact, even overseas Chinese communities and Taiwanese churches are using the hymnal. These songs are short and musically simple. They're usually rhymed, and they resemble Chinese folk songs, which contributed to their popularity. And for obvious reasons, I didn't want us to try to sing one because we would butcher the Chinese. But it's fascinating how, how God uses music in the life and experience of a people to, to fill the tank. You can have a car, but if you've got no fuel in the tank, you aren't going anywhere. And, and music is powerful in terms of awakening, revival, and moving of the Spirit. So we come to our contemporary choruses. The Jesus movement of the 1960s, now we're talking my era, brought different music into the church. In fact, it transformed worship in evangelical churches. It was an irresistible grassroots pop culture that drove kind of the immovable object of tradition and sentiment, and often it produced conflict and controversy. You see, music went from choirs and singing hymns with the piano to guitars and less formality. Choruses were known for their catchy melodies and singability being easy to learn. In some ways, we could equate the Jesus movement and the music that was birthed during this period as a time of revival, renewal, and awakening. It's interesting how, as you study history, God uses His Holy Spirit in the lives of people and often with music to bring about revival, awakening, and to bring about spiritual renewal. We're going to sing two of the courses that come out of this period, it Only Takes a Spark, written in 1969, and Shine Jesus Sign in 1987. The first became popular as I was entering my teen years, and go ahead and do the math. And, and because of that, it has a special place uh, because of that connection for me. See, most of us here, especially if you uh, had a spiritual awakening or, or you accepted Christ during a particular period in your life, the music in that period is probably very special to you. It's tied to an emotion, it's, it's special to you, and you remember it. It was actually written as a just as I am for Christian youth and as a call to share their faith. That was the purpose of the song. 
and it was written by one of the musicians that worked with Billy Graham. The second, Shine, Jesus, Shine, was written as a prayer for revival and a call to allow Christ to shine through us to the world. Uh, so we're going to sing both of these together, and then I'm going to come up for our last one. So it only takes a spark and shine, Jesus, shine. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> hey, uh, this, this song is one of those songs that if you're like my age and maybe a little bit older or maybe a little bit younger, you can probably remember like the place you were the first time you sung it, right? Like, so it's like, for me, I think of, uh, we were back in a Rose Isle and we were, uh, it was probably on a Sunday morning, but I think one of the times that I remember about it, right, is like it was the song that was always sung like at a fireside, right? And it was like, fire would come out and we'd kind of sing some different songs and then in inevitably it'd be like it only takes a spark and it was just like this just beautiful little uh, time right and then we'd struggle through all the verses but we knew that it only takes a spark to get a fire going and it's like we had to sing it but it's interesting uh there's a spot in here that says in the third verse it says i'll shout it from the mountaintops and we're actually going to add a little part and it just says hey world right i don't know if you remember doing that and it kind of seems a little bit uh Maybe it's, if we look at it now, it might seem a little bit cheesy, <laughs> but it's like we have this opportunity to actually shout what we have experienced to the world. We can just say, hey world, I want you to know about what it is that God has done in my life. So let's uh, sing together.
Adam Kendrick, who wrote Shine, Jesus, Shine, was involved in, was the March for Jesus. I don't know if you're, any of you remember that from the 90s, where there would be these big marches through streets of major cities uh, where they were just uh, playing different worship music. And this was one of them that came, uh, there's songs like, uh, he wrote songs like Victory Chant, Hail Jesus, you're my king. Remember that? Your life frees me to sing. Songs like that were coming out, and these were songs of, of just shouting the goodness and, and proclaiming who God was in the midst of, in the midst of the world. And this is, uh, this is one of the songs that came out of that. Thank you. 
Uh, you can take a seat for a second if you like. We're going to do our last song. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this morning. 1987. Ah, sorry. I'm back to the other one. Graves into Gardens. It's a very new song written in 2020, I believe, produced by Elevation Worship. In 2 Kings 13, after the prophet Elisha died, his story didn't end there. Apparently, two Israelite men were near his gravesite, about to bury another man. When suddenly they saw a band of enemy raiders coming, and they threw this dead man's body into Elijah's, Elisha's tomb. As soon as the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood to his feet. That'd be scary, wouldn't it? God is still in the business of bringing dead things to life. If we trust God, even with the seemingly dead areas of our lives, if we believe in his power, if we declare his resurrection power over everything that we sow, nothing will be wasted. God can turn any situation around. This song is honest about our failures and shortcomings, our weaknesses, but also juxtaposes that with God's sovereignty and his ability to move mountains to turn graves into gardens. Hope. And you've probably heard me say, truth is truth no matter where it comes from. For me, the key phrase in this song is, you're the only one who can. He is the foundation of our submission, our obedience, our trust, and our hope. So let's uh, conclude. I'll give the benediction after we sing, but let's conclude our time together singing Graves into Gardens. the world, but it could 
wanted to uh, tap into your emotions this morning. I've wanted to help you connect with your emotions. I don't like them, but God gave them to me. So here I am. And some of you are in the same place. And yet they're an important part of our worship. There's probably one song or another that didn't resonate with you, but there's also hopefully one that did. And they're all expressions of worship and praise to a God that is forever faithful. So they are part of our cry to God and our witness to the world that he is with us, that he will never fail us. And so whether you're struggling and maybe you want to sing it is well with my soul, and hopefully that is true because there's nothing that you face that God won't be able to walk through with you. So we want to think about what we're singing, but we don't want it to be only a cerebral exercise either. We want to engage our emotions, our will, our whole being as we worship God together. We do this corporately. It's been a wonderful morning of worship this morning. Let's pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>